Hi everyone, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Steve Weiss Music, percussion specialist since 1961. If you're looking for a rare piece of sheet music, a specialty gong, or anything percussion, Steve Weiss Music will have it. Please visit steveweissmusic.com or click their link in the show notes. That's S-T-E-V-E-W-E-I-S-S music.com, our percussion series sponsor. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. We're really excited to have Colin Curry with us today. He's a percussionist who composer Steve Reich describes as one of the greatest musicians in the world today. He's performed as a soloist with the world's leading orchestras, including the London Philharmonic, New York Philharmonic, and the Cleveland Orchestra. In addition to being a soloist, he's the founder of the Colin Curry Group, the Colin Curry Quartet, and Colin Curry Records. We'll link to his site in the show notes so you can read more about him. A shout out to our mutual friend, A.D. Spillett, who helped us arrange the interview. Colin, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me along. Nice to catch up with you guys. Uh, so what was the impetus for you um, to start Colin Curry Records? Yeah, well, this, again, uh, is linked to the main impetus for formation of my group, which is okay. the music of Steve Reich, as is well documented. Um, we started with drumming, and having performed it for over a decade, uh I felt the time was right to put down our version. We do play it a bit different from other ensembles. We play it different from Steve and his group. Our recording was always going to be different, mm-hmm. love it or hate it. Um, and I felt the time was, was right. We had no funding, um, so we decided to do a Kickstarter campaign online. Mm. And we had a very successful campaign. And through the generosity of two backers in particular who combined for more than half of our overall total and included a, a member of the public who I'd never even met with mm. a massively generous donation, we were able to get the recording made. So that also shows you never quite know who's out there and who might be enjoying your work. Yeah. Um, then we had this record, but no label. Right. And we went around one or two of the larger labels and they said, no, thank you. And we said, thank you for your honesty. And then we were able to find a way to approach and then partner up with the London Symphony Orchestra, who run a label called LSO Live uh, for their own releases. And this label has a great infrastructure, and they've worked for other um, 
third parties as well okay. along the way, such as uh, Marinsky Theatre, King's College Choir, and most recently they've paired up with Jan Andrea Nozeda and the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. Mm. So they are able to help people out who have recordings but no infrastructure. So we have a partnership with them now, and that was the foundation of the record label. Um, and it's it's been great. The second is that <laughs> that difficult second album. <laughs> um, what was tough because we we didn't obviously make much money from drumming. I mean, no one's going to make much money from these things. Mm-hmm. I basically had to self finance the second album. But as soon as you've got two albums, then you you have a catalogue, and from there right. we've 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 moved on and we've just recorded our sixth album. Wow! Yeah, and so those are all uh, releases of your your ensembles. Yeah, and broadly speaking, um, well, yeah, well, basically, I'm trying to intersperse recording Steve's music, which I will do as exhaustively as possible um, with an outlier. So the second album is a a recital disc with myself and my duo partner, Hawken Hardenberger, the trumpet soloist. Um, So that's an album of... You know, who knows what, but it's a great album. I, I would say it's the album that I'm, you know, extremely proud of, um, if I may say. But it's it's a real, it, it's certainly not something that um, presents repertoire that is mainstream in any way. Sure. Um, we then followed that with another group album playing Steve's music mm-hmm. live in Paris. Um, and then there was another outlier where I was able to get from from live concerts that had worked out well. Um, recordings of the percussion concertos by H.K. Gruber, one of which was written for me. And on this album, you hear the premiere of that uh, concerto. And most recently, we just recorded music for 18 musicians in Abbey Road. And that's got a very quick turnaround. That's coming out in April 2023. Oh, that's great. Didn't you just play that in New York? Yeah, we finally got to do the postponed a U.S. tour with the group uh, in which we did the new piece Traveler's Prayer, which was written for us mm-hmm. and paired up with this almighty program when it went on all night, but it was mm-hmm. Tehillim Traveler's Prayer Interval Music for 18. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was a, to bring that music to New York, bring it home to see Steve again after a long absence yeah. was a very emotional thing and the Carnegie Hall audience was mm. Uh, fantastic. We had a standing ovation mm-hmm. during our performance of Tehillim. I mean, it was oh, really, wonderful. really um, a, a, a big thrill. Yeah. yeah. I was looking forward to, when you were at South Bank Center, uh, I was looking forward to watching it, but they, they didn't offer any streaming. I think you yeah. were, what, you was at a similar program or no? No, it wasn't. Um, it was very, it was very similar. I think we had Runner in there. I think we maybe played quartet as well, but uh, okay. we had tra- Traveler's Prayer in for sure, yeah. and, and uh, Tehillim, yeah, yeah. So, what's what's on the horizon? Oh, any recordings on the horizon, or is that under wraps? Uh, well, I think the next recording would be with the quartet. Uh, we've been pushing pretty hard on expanding our repertoire. Mm-hmm. One or two really excellent pieces written for us. Um, and another couple of pieces that have fallen into our lap. So I think time it's time for a, a mixed album of, of for the percussion quartet. That would be a that would be a good thing to do. Yeah. So is it fair to say that the record label is sort of your tool to record and release recordings that you want to make? 
Yeah, I I have absolute carte blanche okay. on yeah. the artistic side of it, and sure. so it's it's things that are dear to my heart yeah. and things that I would things that I would like to record in terms of I think that they would record well. I mean, some of the repertoire I do, I think you just have to experience it live. Yeah. But there are other pieces that that go nicely onto disc. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, Colin, you're roughly in the middle of your career. What's different now than when you started, and, and what really hasn't changed? <laughs> um, I think what's different now is that there is a hugely populated percussion community of outstanding players. Uh, everywhere you turn, I mean, you can't turn on the internet without seeing something that's going to blow your head off. And, and uh, recently, a couple of years ago, or I guess maybe more now, but I was on the jury for the first round of the Geneva competition. And I would just look in admiration, but also partially in horrors, <laughs> candidate after candidate would just come on and just ace these pieces, you know. Yeah. Bruno Mantovani, moi je, and no problem, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, just phenomenal. So this is something that maybe I think is interesting for the younger percussionists. Maybe they're not aware that they are part of this, mm. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, explosion it's a continuum. of, yeah. yeah. It's a continuum. Yeah. You're part of that continuum, right? It's because of you and people like you who've inspired and say, I want to be like that person. If that person can do it, I can do it, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, what I think I'm, I'm happy with is my contribution to the repertoire. And I, I'm there, I feel quite confident that I, I am leaving a legacy and that there are pieces of depth and distinction for new players to take on and, and also ample room for them. I mean, I think the more the merrier. I mean, I'm in nobody's way. I mean, yeah. These pieces are ripe for the taking. And uh, I think that's what's the, the newest thing. The biggest change is, is that this, I, I'm surrounded now by all this very inspiring um, percussion activity, which there's more of it, but it's also more visible. I mean, of course, I had the people, I'd already mentioned the Safri duo. So mm -hmm. I, I've, I've had people that I looked up to. Um, and what's the same about the business? Um I, well, what comes to mind is is that it's it's still a very challenging business, <laughs> and I right. don't want I don't want that to sound negative, um, no. but but I, I think it's 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 still something that you constantly have to plug away at, and the second you rest on your laurels, it's like you're starting to to fizzle out or fade or something. You 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 have to constantly be be pushing and looking and discovering and to, to, to keep that, that hunger. And I think that's the thing that, that uh, is very, very important to remember. Well, and you know, you're, you're actually, it looks to me as though you've built in a, a small ecosystem that encourages you to do that because you're out doing concerti, you're doing solo, you have the quartet, you have the records, you're putting yourself in a position that you will inherently be creative and productive. Yeah. And I've also, you know, rather, rather cheekily um, surrounded myself with these fantastic players. 
who <laughs> who make it easy for me. I mean, I can sound very good in music for eighteen musicians when I'm playing <laughs> with those seven with those seventeen others. Right, I right. sound great, <laughs> and it's because of them, you know. So um, I, I am uh, certainly, you know. Again, I keep saying this, but I'm I'm very blessed and and really relish this close camaraderie that I do have with, with these other players, these musicians. And this, this question may be redundant from what you just said, but in your experience, what is the hardest part about being um, a professional artist? Well, I, I would say I wish someone had told me early on about the highs and lows of performing. <clears throat> because I would go out and get an early, early gig. Let's say, go, go to Tokyo, play Suntory Hall debut concerto. You know, grace, like, wow, I... Could not get going to the airport. So excited! This is this is a a thrill. But no one told me about the, the danger of all of this, and that is that you go there, you play your performance. You're going to be hideously jet lagged. Um, you're going to come off that stage. Two thousand people are going to be screaming for you with the greatest adulation and excitement. You're going to walk out that concert hall into. Uh, urban environments where you can't even read the map. No one's going to recognize you. No one's going to help you. You'll be on this weird high, you, you know, how to deal with that. Um, these are the things that I, I wish had been a manual. Maybe there's more help available now. I, I don't know. But um, the, these are things that were dangerous for me when I was starting out is, is the highs and lows. Mm. And uh, again, that's where I benefited a lot from being with my group is that I'm, I'm with my close friends and I can, I can be myself and we can handle these things together. Yeah. But um, it, it's, it's something you have to get on top of. Mm. You, you, you have to understand that you're going to have this rush and you have to know that it's going to be a little wild and it's going to feel strange coming down and that needs work and everyone has to find their own way on that one. There's no answer to that, but it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's part of the reason for this podcast. We have all these guests coming in, they're sharing their experiences. But until you get lost in Tokyo and you don't have the business card of the address you're supposed to get to, right? Yeah. Not, check, not that check, that's happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, uh, right? I mean, what are yeah, you going to do? Near enough. Yeah. 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 So, so it looks like you've premiered or commissioned about 30 can charity just looking at your website. Can you describe the process and what it's like in the early stages? I, I think performers listening would be interested in how the idea of a piece evolves over the collaboration. Yeah, well, the nice thing about the concertos in particular is it uh, could not be a more um, diverse group of pieces in the sense that they've all come about under their own steam. Some composers want you there for every note of the piece, they're sending you phrase after phrase. They're calling you, they're emailing you, they want meetings. Others, you talk about a concerto even in, as, as a concept. And then two years later, having barely heard, heard a word, full score arrives published on your doormat. <laughs> so there's all these different, and what I'm very fond of is this collection of, of creative types. They're all so interesting and in that they all, so different and, and vibrant in their own way. And the pieces have all had a different uh, genesis and, and story and trajectory and such diverse 
collection of music, um, they have very little in common with each other, and that's my favorite thing about it. So sometimes the composers, you have some say in what it's going to be, and others probably not so much. Yeah, I mean, generally, when I go with the concerto idea, it's usually the generic, would you write me a percussion concerto? Sometimes I have a specific idea. For example, at the moment, I would very much like Toshio Hosokawa to write me a marimba concerto. That's very particular, something I feel is perhaps missing in my repertoire and something that I think he would do very, very well. So that's under discussion. But normally it's, it's just this, okay, let's have a percussion concerto. Yeah. And then you get Julia Wolfe who writes Rise and Fly and, and it's body percussion and street percussion and buckets and things. Or it's Helen Grime with, you know, a lot of vibraphone. Uh, or Bruno Mantovani, all unpitched, massive drum setup. It, it, Danny Elfman, uh, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there, it's, everyone has their own ideas. And I like to give them that freedom, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. One more quick question uh, before we get to our final <clears> three <throat> questions. Um, something you just said. Uh, you just said you'd like to have that marimba concerto to, as, as part of your repertoire. Are you thinking about um, the repertoire, your repertoire, in terms of um, you know outlets for it? So, is there a compromise between hey, I think there's a need or a demand for someone to hear um, a certain type of concerto, and therefore I'm going to find someone to write that, or are you is it purely from your own sort of artistic expression? Um, I, you know, I, I need to do a to play a piece like fill in the blank. Um, generally speaking, I approach composer cause I love their music. Uh, so recent ones, Andrew Norman, I'd heard his phenomenal fiendish ability for orchestration, fast paced zippy. And I thought, well, got to have that. Okay. I mean, I can just, a, a percussion concerto just is inevitable for him. And I would like to be in there yeah. so that's how a piece like that happens so generally speaking it, it's a, a love of a composer's music okay. at this point with with almost 40 concertos done i am looking for the the, the gaps in my repertoire so so what's not covered yet which style isn't covered yet okay. um and that was one of the reasons bruno mantovani was approached i felt i was missing something of that rather harder edged um modernistic avant-garde style that I'm, that I'm very fond of, but don't play very much because there are not so many concertos with that type of music. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I'm also looking to kind of seal the deal and make sure that everything's covered. Sure. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay. So Colin, now we've reached the part of our interview where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. And the first question is, what advice would you give to others wanting to become an arts entrepreneur? Um, know yourself, be true to yourself, but get, get to know yourself, understand yourself and support yourself mentally. Um, if you believe in a piece of music or a type of music or a composer or a certain approach, you're probably right. Stick with it. Mm -hmm. That's my advice. What can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience? Ask yourself the question, what's happening as I walk out of my front door? So 
I understand that I have a very privileged position of traveling and working with large symphony orchestras and composers of repute. But the thing I really want to address right now is music in my local community. So I found a local arts institution called Chamber Music Scotland. I've paired up with them and we've got an infrastructure in place for me to go into the primary schools that are, uh, these are junior schools, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. American, yeah. um, <clears throat> in the area. So I can work with very young musician and non-musician children. And then there's a community center where they have this kind of meeting that I've not been yet, but I'm going to get involved there. And ultimately, I'm intending to launch a uh, concert series here in Rutherglen, which has been my home for about three years now. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's doing your bit on the, the concert circuit, obviously the highbrow, if you will, side of things. But then what's happening when you leave your front door? Mm -hmm. Make sure music is happening there too. We, we rarely ask follow-up questions on these final three, but I just have a question. So what prompted you to go into those schools and speak with the, the arts councils? Well, I just have very good recollections of extremely important interactions with visiting uh, musicians and artists when I was of school age. Um, occasionally someone would come in and it wouldn't necessarily even be a music thing, but just something creative. Yeah. I even recollect some, um, it was some kind of dance duo. And I think they were from Canada, which seemed very exotic at the time growing up in Edinburgh in the eighties. Um, and it, it's, it's somehow it was a bit weird and a bit shocking. And it, it, it just pushed a button inside me. Yeah. And so I think whatever it is, um, you know, children uh, have this amazing ability to process things um, at their own tempo. But it, the important thing is that these fires are lit early on. So that's something that I, I feel is very, very important and uh, something I want to give back with in my local community. Yeah, that's perfect. Last question. What's the best artistic or entrepreneurial advice you've ever been given? <laughs> um Okay. I was in a, I was in a very good uh, school wind band and my sister was in it too. She played the saxophone and we went to rehearsals every week, every Thursday. And we had this band director, his name is Alan Fernie. And he had this advice and I've, I've shared it widely. So anyone hearing this who's been to a masterclass of mine or whatever, they'll know what's coming next, but it's worth sharing. He had this advice that I still think is my favorite bit of advice which was to do with playing a phrase. And his advice for playing this phrase was to play it as slow as you dare. And I think that's the best advice I've ever had. So whether, it, whether you're playing a million notes a minute or three semi-breves every 10 minutes, you try and find that width in the music. So play this thing as slow as you dare. Even if it's massively up-tempo, just try and fit it in the pocket. Mm. So I think that, that advice transcends anything I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I, I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of it and you gave us a lot of information. We will make sure we link to every uh, institution and, and musician that we can find and uh, put it in the show notes. Thank you very much. Very nice to catch up with you guys. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Thank you.